The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. No Tom today. He was on the podcast yesterday. He had uh, something he had to take care of today. He'll be back in his normal spot on Thursday. Uh, one guest on the show, Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. I've enjoyed our conversations with Nick both on this podcast and on the radio show. Nick is a PFF data analyst, but he's a huge D.C. sports fan and a huge Washington Commanders fan. Uh, so he gets into the PFF grades for Washington, um, even if he doesn't have the responsibility of grading the game himself. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But good perspective from Nick, not only on Washington, on the game on Sunday, uh, but on the league as a whole. Uh, we will talk to Nick coming up here shortly. The show today is brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and they'll match your first deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to 1000 bucks. Washington right now uh, is an 11-point underdog against the Eagles on Monday Night Football with a total of 44-and-a-half. By the way, the next NFL game of the season is Thursday Night Football, Atlanta and Carolina. I mean, that is one dog of a game. Although, interestingly... I want to see the Falcons. I haven't watched a full game of theirs yet. They're an interesting team. They're a three-point favorite uh, at Carolina at my bookie. And again, use my promo code KevinDC, and they'll give you free money. Uh, they'll double your first deposit. You're not going to find a better place or a safer place uh, to wager. Even if you've got a place, I would recommend uh, using my bookie as your backup spot, as your place to compare uh, point spreads and pricing and things of the sort. But the Atlanta Falcons with Arthur Smith as the head coach in the second year, you know, they are four and five. They are t- they're tied for first, although the Buccaneers have the tiebreaker because the Buccaneers beat the Falcons 21 to 15 over a month ago. They actually finish with each other um, in Atlanta on the final Sunday of the year, and that could determine the NFC South champion. But the Falcons at four and five, their five losses were to the Saints by a point in which they had a 16-point lead, 
Uh, they lost to the Rams by four. They had the ball late with a chance to win. They lost to the Bucks on that horrendous roughing the passer penalty uh, by Grady Jarrett on Tom Brady, 21-15 to by six. They did get beat up a little bit by the Bengals. They did, although that was a 28-17 game at a halftime after the Bengals had gotten out to a 21 to nothing lead. Uh, and then on Sunday, one of the wildest plays of the year. I don't know if you guys have seen this play yet, but in a 17-17 game, the Chargers are driving late in the game. They're in field goal range already with a chance to basically walk it off. Uh, Atlanta's got two timeouts left, but they've got a first and 10 uh, at the Atlanta 28-yard line. They're going to have to run some plays, but they're in field goal range. Uh, and they run Eckler for three yards. Atlanta calls a timeout. It's second and seven. They run Herbert for three yards. Uh, it's now third and four, and Atlanta's done with their timeouts. The ball's at the Atlanta 22-yard line. Now, they could have, if they had wanted to, taken a knee and sent their kicker out there to kick a field goal uh, to win the game. Now, understand this. It's not right now... Dustin Hopkins. Hopkins has been hurt, and they signed that Texas kicker, Cameron Dicker. Cameron the kicker Dicker, who was at Texas. And he had already made a field goal in the game. Uh, They were in short range. They're at the 22, so you're talking about a 40-yard field goal. But instead, they ran Austin Eckler, who fumbled the football. It was recovered by Todd Graham, uh, a defensive lineman slash linebacker for Atlanta. He is running it back, you know, up the field as the clock is dwindling down. They're going to be in field goal range potentially, or very close to field goal range when he finally gets tackled. Without being hit, he drops the ball and fumbles the ball back to the Chargers. So now the Chargers have it first and 10 at the Atlanta 43 with like 30 seconds to go, and Herbert hits a big pass down the middle. Uh, They ran Eckler again, believe it or not. I can't believe they actually gave the ball back to Eckler after he had fumbled it rather than taking a knee. Um, But they sent the kicker in there, and he booted the field goal for the game winner. Um, Atlanta in the game, you know, they had a lead. They had a 17-14 to lead in the fourth quarter. Their kicker, who's pretty reliable, missed a field goal that would have given them a 20-14 to lead. I'm interested in watching the Falcons Thursday night. How about that? Even if it is against the Panthers. I want to see. I think Arthur Smith is doing a great job as an offensive-oriented head coach with a guy in Mariota who's he's barely letting throw the football. I mean, Mariota on on in the law in the uh, game on Sunday against the Chargers uh, was twelve of twenty-three for one hundred and twenty-nine yards. Uh, in the game. Uh, That is not, you know, uh, real trust in the quarterback as a thrower of the football. Um, But Mariota, I mean, he had a game in which he threw, I think, you know, like 11 passes in a game or 12 passes. It may have been against uh, Cincinnati. He's been rushing the ball well. It is a dual threat quarterback 
uh, attack for them. Um, they've got really good backs. Tyler Algier was one of those running backs that I desperately wanted Washington to consider. I would rather have Algier than Robinson Jr. Algier, 10 carries, 99 yards in the game against the Chargers Sunday. Uh, Corderell Patterson was back. They've got Pitts. They've got Drake London. They've got some offensive weapons. They've got some defensive playmakers. Grady Jarrett having a really good season for them. Plus, you get a preview you get a preview of Washington's game in a few weeks at home against the Falcons. So I don't know why I started talking about Atlanta-Carolina on Thursday night. I think it's because I just saw the point spread for the Atlanta-Carolina game on my on my bookie. But it should be the lowest rated game of the year of the Thursday night games. I mean, that is a dog of a game. But Atlanta's interesting uh, to me. Man, they've had a couple of dogs of third. I mean, last week they did have an undefeated team. By the way, the um, uh, the baseball I think outrated the football last Thursday night on Amazon. You know, Amazon's been drawing I think six, seven million viewers, something like that. But they, uh, the Thursday night Amazon package has Atlanta, Carolina this week. Next week it's Tennessee at Green Bay. I mean, the Packers stink. Um, And then you get the Thanksgiving uh, matchups. And then the week after that, you get a big one, uh, a potential big one in the AFC East, Buffalo and New England. Uh, I do think they've got a dog of a game down the road. I think, I mean, some of these teams that they were expecting to be really good, like the Raiders and the Rams may not be. They play in a Thursday night game late in the year. Um, But anyway, uh, there's other NFL talk coming up here in this opening segment before uh, we get to uh, my conversation with Nick Ackridge. First of all, Matthew McConaughey has thrown his hat into the ring in the Bezos Jay-Z bid. I will repeat what I did uh, on the show Friday. I don't really care who owns the team if they subscribe to this more than anything else, that their number one goal is winning a Super Bowl and that this organization is going to be about football first and everything else distant from that. So I do get concerned with a Bezos, Jay-Z, Matthew McConaughey bid. McConaughey, as many of you know, has been a a Washington football fan, uh, even though he grew up in Texas and he's a Longhorn. He's a huge Skins fan. He's, He's had a relationship with Dan over the years. He's been at a lot of games. You know, I think I told the story. Cooley was in the booth, or in the suite, excuse me, uh, and McConaughey was in there. And Chris said, what's up, Matt? How you doing? They had met before, and Matt went over to Cooley and said, hey, Chris, Chris, it's not Matt. It's Matthew. Um, Cooley, of course, undeterred, called him Matt, apparently, the rest of the night. Um, But... Uh, I don't have any problem with that as the ownership group. I'm not really concerned about conflicts of interest. I could care less about someone's politics. Um, Also, um, Bezos is the lead. I mean, Jay-Z and McConaughey don't have enough money. They got a lot of money, don't get me wrong, relative to all of us. But they don't have NFL owner kind of money. They will participate on a very small scale and will end up, I would assume, with a, you know, a small equity position in the team. But Bezos is going to stroke, you know, 95% of the check. He doesn't need Jay-Z. He doesn't need Matthew McConaughey. Or maybe he does. Maybe the NFL wants diversity, which I know they want. So Jay-Z would certainly fit the bill as far as that's concerned. 
But I, I went through my list the other day of the top 10 things I'm looking for in, in an owner. And number one is I just want the goal of the organization, the priority, the mantra, the mission statement of the organization to be, we are about winning Super Bowls. Maybe we could just say, we are about competing for and winning Super Bowls. I don't want an organization, when the ownership takes over and says the NFL is an incredible brand and Washington's a great market and football's important here, and we envision this brand associated with Washington that moves us into the media world, the food world, the fashion world, the pop culture world, the music world. I don't want to hear that. Even if it's important that it's true in today's sports, I want those things to matter very little. Winning is the most important thing. We just dealt with 23 and a half years of a guy who was more concerned in eking every single cent out of a, a very passionate fan base that he inquired, that he acquired, excuse me, did not build. And then he chased them away with a poor football team, embarrassing behavior, and constantly going after the fan base for every last nickel and penny. And now he doesn't have many of those left when it comes to the relative conversation of the team's financial position compared to other teams. I'm not talking about, you know, valuation. I'm talking about, you know, P&L, annual P&L. All right, their revenues are way down compared to other teams. I don't need my chief marketing officer. In fact, I don't need a chief marketing officer in the organization. There's going to be a business side, yes, but I don't want to know who the head of business operations is. I don't want us to focus on who the PR people or, or who the chief marketing officer is if there is one. I don't care that we're investing in a Formula One team. I don't care that we're really into pickleball. And that the team is going to team up with, you know, some pickleball league or buy a pickleball team and play some big pickleball matches at the new stadium. I don't care about Jay-Z's next big album or Beyonce's next big album and using this platform as a promotional platform for that. I want the organization and the new ownership group to be focused solely on winning Super Bowls. Personally, that may be a completely outdated business mantra in team sports, uh, but I am still convinced that if you win a lot, all the other stuff will take care of itself. You'll be able to pick and choose on all the other stuff because they'll all be coming to you. Win big off on the field. Don't embarrass yourself off it, and the world will be your clamshell, if that's how it goes. I think it's oyster. Uh, so McConaughey, Kevin Durant wants to be a part of somebody's bid. We'll see. I know that the NFL does not want conglomerates. So, um, Bezos would really be seen as the Bezos group, but really not as a conglomerate. He's going to write the check for 7 billion plus. Uh, okay. Um, Wizards won last night without Bradley Beal. I didn't talk at all about basketball yesterday. They had an embarrassing loss to Brooklyn the other night by 42 points. The Caps won last night. Ovechkin, another goal, as now the next thing in line after setting the single uh, career number for goals within one franchise, uh, beating Gordie Howe's record. Now he is you know, approaching Gordie Howe for number two 
on the all-time goals list. Caps also won last night, which was a big win for them uh, because they have quite the schedule uh, coming up. They got the win against Edmonton after losing four in a row. A couple of those were overtime uh, losses. Uh, But they've got a game against the Penguins tomorrow night. Then they've got two with Tampa and one with Florida. Uh, So an interesting week for them coming up. Uh, By the way, back to the NBA. The Lakers last night got absolutely torched by the Utah Jazz. The Lakers are terrible. I mean, I am, I'm actually giddy about that. Uh, They got beat 139 to 116. They gave up 76 points in the first half. Utah, the most surprising NBA team so far. The Warriors have been the most disappointing, but they got 47 from Curry last night uh, to snap a five-game losing skid. I just think right now they are disinterested in basketball. Uh, Maryland won last night. First game of the Kevin Willard era goes to the Terps, 71, 71 to 49 over Niagara. I had Coach Willard on the radio show this morning, so you can find that at the team980.com and listen to that. That was in the 8 a.m. hour. Uh, he's great. Uh, I have met Kevin and uh, he's got a wonderful family. They love it here. Um, I think he's going to do a great job. This is going to be a rough year. A lot of transfers, a whole new backcourt. You know, no Fats Russell and Eric Ayala. Eric Ayala, I think, really turned out to be one hell of a Maryland player. Um, but uh, he's got talent. You know, he's got Scott back. He's got Hakeem Hart back. He's got Juju Reese back. He's, I can tell you Kevin Willard's excited about Juju Reese, who I am too. I think he's incredibly skilled. Uh, I think the problem with Maryland is they're going to have to get really good guard play and they're going to have to really figure it out with what I would call a lack of size and girth in the middle and not a lot of depth uh, in, in terms of size. But they have a brutal schedule. I mean, he added Tennessee and UCLA to the schedule. And uh, they, they also have uh, a tournament coming up in Mohegan Sun, uh, Connecticut, where they're going to play St. Louis and then either Miami or Providence. They have two early Big Ten games, including a game against Illinois. But, I mean, hell, I mean, they've got Louisville in the ACC Big Ten uh, Challenge on the road at Freedom Hall. Uh, but, my God, or the Yum Center, whatever it's called now. Um, but they uh, they have Tennessee in Brooklyn and then what should be – the you know the, the Big Ten opener against Illinois is a Friday night. Illinois is a ranked team, and then they've got UCLA coming in like a week later um, or a few nights later, uh, where they will face one of the top ten teams in the country in the Bruins in College Park. That's part of a home and home. I think they're at Pauley next year, uh, but he is scheduling different than Mark, no doubt. Uh, and that was one of the complaints from a lot of us. Um, you know, I think Mark's point was you know we we did have you know a schedule. We were scheduling really for you know, sort of the the uh, key metric numbers um, where we could get wins, but it would also be valuable in terms of some of the teams they played from the A-10 and other quality leagues. But he didn't play a lot of those marquee games unless they were scheduled for him, right? You know, the ACC Big Ten Challenge, playing UVA a couple of times, playing Carolina, some of the others. Um, and, you know, had never made our, our way to Maui uh, once, and I think that hopefully will change. Uh but uh, Tennessee, UCLA, and look, Turge played some games up in Brooklyn, uh, some big-time games in Brooklyn 
um, and usually had, you know, a game, a significant game right around the holidays, played Seton Hall twice, uh, you know, Big East teams. Had that Georgetown thing back-to-back years. I'd like to see that thing resume. I don't know that it will. Uh, but um, Maryland's got a brutal, brutal schedule uh, here in basketball. All right, here's the thing that I wanted to get to here in the opening segment before we get to Nick. So I went back and watched the game from Sunday again, and I had a couple of those kind of upon further review things. Number one, I think the St. Juice pick six was a pick six. And I didn't say otherwise in my game recap. I just said that maybe it was DPI, but the way they had called the game, um, they should have let that one go because they let everything else go. And I think that's very important in in, in officiating in any sport. You know, as a coach or a player, what you want to know and what you want from an officiating crew is consistency. If they're going to call it close, call it close throughout. Call it both ways close. If they're going to let them play, let them play throughout. Don't change all of a sudden in the last three minutes of the game or the last quarter of, of an NFL game. And they changed. The Boger crew had not whistled that the entire game. And it's questionable as to whether it's DPI in the first place. I mean, I think by the letter of the rule it is, uh, but they're allowing more hand fighting this year. I just think that that is a hundred percent, given the way the game's called, given the emphasis this year to allow a little bit more hand fighting, not illegal contact. That's a different thing of emphasis, but a li- allow a little bo- bit more of, of of hand fighting with the ball in the air. I think that that's a pick six game over play. Now, if they had whistled four PIs already, DPIs already in the game, that's one thing. But they hadn't. And I know Minnesota fans will say, hell, I mean, we Jefferson two or three times, Thielen at least once, mugged, no call. Well, that's what they were doing throughout the game. They weren't calling those, but they did. That was game over at that point. That's 24-7, game over. Um, a couple of other uh, observations from the game. Um, the Ridgeway play, which... You know, the the uh, the jumping over the center or making contact with the center, which allowed Minnesota to burn the clock and kick, for all intents and purposes, a walk-off field goal. Wasn't exactly walk-off with 12 seconds to go, but you get the point. Ron Rivera took major exception to this call in his presser yesterday. He said he does not think it was a penalty. I'm going to read to you his quote uh, because – The sound we could not find uh, produced anywhere. It might be out there now. But, quote, I don't agree with the call. I went and looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And there was, I mean, he didn't hit him with his shoulder pads and didn't hit him with the helmet. He crossed over and caught him with his hip. He was going into the gap, closed quote. So, uh, I don't, I honestly don't know what to say as to whether or not that was technically a violation of the rule or not. It looked like it was to me. To a certain degree, it did. Um, John Kime, though, tweeted out the following. Uh, John, in tweeting out about that play, said that Washington says it wasn't a penalty. You can agree or disagree with them. Only point here is they were looking for it. And why were they looking for it? Because Ridgeway did something similar on an extra point when it wasn't called, and the Vikings alerted the officials so that they were watching for it on the field goal. And it was probably 
Kime says, a worse infraction on the extra point than it was on the field goal attempt. So if they didn't call it on the extra point, Ridgeway probably felt like it was okay to do it there. Good, smart move by Kevin O'Connell and the Vikings coaching staff to alert the officials, hey, like this is this you missed this call. And so they were looking for it going in, which meant that if it was even close, they were probably going to call it. But here's the point I want to make, and I think it's a significant point uh, about the decision that Washington made to try to go hard at blocking the kick in that situation. I don't know if Ridgeway, you know, committed the infraction or not. Maybe Ron Rivera gets a letter saying we got that one wrong. And Ron Rivera and the staff, I don't think, knew that Minnesota alerted the officials to the fact that Ridgeway had committed an infraction that they had missed on a PAT earlier. But the point that I would like to make is a 22-yard field goal in the NFL uh, is a 99%, 99.5% probability. I mean, when's the last time you saw a 22-yard field goal missed? The chances of blocking a field goal like that because the ball's going to come out high, it's not coming out low because it's a kick of distance, is slim and none. So you are sitting there, you have held Minnesota to the field goal attempt because on the third and fourth, the two-minute warning, Cousins threw the fade to Jefferson, and St. Juice did a great job breaking it up. So now you're going to get the ball back after this field goal at 20-17 to with a timeout left and a chance to not only go down and tie the game with a field goal, maybe win it. Maybe Terry McLaurin catches another crazy 50-50 ball from Heineke in the last 30 seconds, and you end up having Heineke sneak one over for the one for a 24-20 win. You shouldn't have taken the risk. Blocking a kick from 22 yards out is low, low, low probability. Him missing the kick, really slim and none. What are you taking the risk for on that play? Why would you have Ridgeway do that? You know, and by the way, if he broke the rule on a PAT, it's somebody's job on that team, even though it wasn't called, to say, hey, uh, John Ridgeway, 91, could have been called for roughing the center on that PAT. Get a message down to him. He can't be that close. So that is another overall situation where I just think the, 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 the risk did not match anywhere near the reward. I mean, the chance for the reward was slim and none. And you took too much of a risk for what was a long, long, long shot of blocking a kick. And you cost yourself a chance to tie the game or win the game. Because at that point, even though they didn't seem to really understand it, Minnesota did, the game was over. You know, anybody that can do math understood that there was one timeout left, and then after that, you had 40 and 40 on a second and third down play of play clock, plus whatever they burned running some plays, which they did burn three or four seconds on the Cook run and on the Cousins uh, cousins run, the Cook runs and the Cousins uh, run, where they had no, no desire to score. They weren't going to be stupid. So it just shouldn't have been a situation. They should have told everybody, relax, we're not trying to do anything on this. Watch it, because in case there's a fumbled snap or something, we want to get in there and mess it up so that the you know, guy can't just pick it up and place it back down and have him kick it again. But my point is, don't take the risk of being anywhere near the center on that play. You know, Because an offsides would have been obviously much better 
And offsides isn't an automatic first down. If you're going to take the risk, take the risk with the guy off the edge because it's fourth and goal. Take the guy, uh, take the risk with the guy off the edge, maybe getting a quick jump to block the field goal. I've had this uh, theory in the past with Cooley on kicks like that that you just have the guy run off the edge really hard and rough the kicker. <laughs> Try to take him out. But rough him so that you know they don't get the kick off, and now he's thinking about that guy before he kicks the next one. All right, last thing uh, upon further review. So much discussion from so many of you, and I think it's reasonable conversation. I'm not dismissing the conversation about Scott Turner. I'm not. I think after watching the game again, there are several things that occurred to me. Number one is all of you want you know Taylor Heineke's strengths leveraged more. And I talked about that last year a lot, and I've talked about it this year. You know, personally, I think the best thing to do with him, if you knew he was going to be your starting quarterback for a season, which they did not know last year because they thought Ryan Fitzpatrick was going to be the starting quarterback for 17 games, and this year they thought it was going to be Carson Wentz. Um, I just would have designed a different offense. I would have been more of a dual-threat attack. I would have leveraged the fact that not only is he athletic, he's got really good vision and he's got good ball skills, and I would have turned him into a dual-threat quarterback. Lots of zone read, lots of read option, lots of RPO, lots of different things for him uh, to really threaten a defense and put a defense into that situation of, is the quarterback going to run on this play? Uh, Because, you know, just the threat of the quarterback being a runner is really helpful to an offense when he's a legitimate threat. Hell, it works sometimes when the quarterback isn't a legitimate threat. We've seen that over the years. But I, you know, mentioned this yesterday, I think, maybe last week. It is kind of hard midseason to say, oh, we're going to scrap the offense that we worked all OTA sessions on, all minicamp sessions on, all training camp on, because we're going to go with this guy and we're going to change our offense. That just is a little bit easier said than done. The other part of it is, why isn't there more sprint out? Why isn't there more getting them outside of the pocket? So there are a couple of things. Um, Number one is, you know, on a lot of getting quarterbacks out of the pocket, you know, sprinting, you know, out, even bootlegs, in many chance, unless you're setting up that bootleg to take a deep shot, you are essentially cutting off half the field. Somebody made a point to me. Um, They said, you know, with Dwayne Haskins, they, you know, they had him sprint out more. Uh, uh, they had more quick throws, more bubbles, and more sprint out throws with him than they've had with Taylor. Well, I think they knew Dwayne was limited at that point in his career and that he needed more one-read situations. He needed quick bubbles. And by the way, I remember specifically the Rams game uh, and the, the Ravens game where he had all those yards I thought that they were really very well-designed game plans for what they had at quarterback. You know, that gets us to the whole Haskins thing. Rest his soul. God rest his soul. But, man, you know, quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. And if they really knew deep down when they took over this team that he wasn't their guy, you know, that really is the single biggest mistake they've made. But I digress. Back to this. So I think it's kind of hard just in midseason just implement a new offense to leverage Taylor Heineke's strengths. Okay, that's number one. Number two is this. Watching that game back yesterday, you know, you don't want to cut half the field off for him. And I'm not saying that every, you know, uh, throw or every design to get a guy outside the pocket means you're cutting off half the field. Several of them are. 
But they have confidence in his ability to read defenses and, you know, not limit significantly the playbook from a throw standpoint. And so they don't want to limit, you know, this stuff with him in the game versus Wentz or last year him in the game versus, you know, uh, Fitzpatrick. I think maybe on some things in terms of the length of the throw, the number of shots they're going to take, you know, to stretch the field, that changes with Heineke versus Fitz and versus Wentz. But, you know, they don't want a, a limited, hey, this guy's really mobile. We're going to sprint him out, cut off half the field. We're going to run a ton of bootleg. First of all, you know what? He doesn't look super comfortable running bootleg. On the two bootlegs that I watched under center, you got to be under center, really, for a bootleg uh, to be effective. And he's in shotgun too much. Um, but I didn't think he looked super comfortable. He was late on that throw to Terry, uh, a little bit late. And he hit the ch- easy check down to Bates on the other one. And, and that leads me to, to this point. And that is, they are so much of a shotgun team. They ran some pistol, too. I actually like them in the empty set. I like them in the empty set because it's all quick game with the empty set. And he's pretty good at looking at, you know, a defense and saying, this guy is going to be open. This is the matchup I'm going to take advantage of. And he gets the ball out quickly. And, yes, sometimes there's extra man pressure, but it's quick game out of the empty set. So I kind of like that for him. Um, and he's throwing from the pocket there. Okay, he is throwing from the pocket. But I kind of like that for him because it makes it forces him to be quick with the decision. And they've got enough guys that you've got good options and good matchups when you go empty set. But on a lot of their runs, they're in shotgun. Pistol a couple of times too. I don't know why there's such a heavy shotgun team. It probably has something to do with what he's comfortable with, what Fitz was comfortable with, what Wentz is comfortable with. It may be in part with what Gibson and Robinson Jr. and McKissick are comfortable with. But, you know, when you're in shotgun and all of your play action is coming from shotgun, or a lot of it is, those are pocket throws, you know, and the play action stuff when he's in the pocket throwing, that should slow down a pass rush so that the pocket throws aren't as much of an issue. Now, his size is, and he had a lot of balls deflected on Sunday. Uh, understood. But they also, at a shotgun, it's harder to run a lot of the bootleg stuff and the keeper stuff. You see that from under center. You know, after you've kind of established the fact that you're going to run some outside zone with your running back you know, whether it's Gibson or Robinson Jr., and then you're going to bring it back what, you know, the Shanahan's call quarterback keepers, what we would refer to as bootlegs, with a couple layer, uh, of, of layers of potential throws, the underneath one to the tight end, the mid-range throw to a wide receiver, and sometimes there's a third level downfield with another wide receiver. And I, you, you don't see a lot of bootleg at a shotgun. And since most of their runs, including their zone runs, are coming from shotgun, you know, you're not going to be able to sell the bootleg, you know, when you're turning and just meshing. Rather than with a normal boot under center, you're reaching out on a, you know, an outside zone run, and then you're coming back against a defense that's flowing in one direction. You don't get that out of shotgun runs. So those are some of the observations as to why, perhaps. I'm not saying, by the way, that, that, that shotgun should be the preference. Maybe they should have him under center more. I thought he looked better under center on some of the play action stuff. I think you can get, um, 
you know, defenses to really, if you've run the ball a little bit from under center, you can get them to hesitate even more on some of those, uh, you know, fake handoffs and throws from the pocket pocket on play action under center. But they're they're more of a shotgun team. They were on Sunday anyway. I'm I'm talking about mostly Sunday. I don't have the numbers for the season. But they're more comfortable right now with their quarterbacks. Scott Turner's more comfortable in the shotgun. And so I think some of that has something to do with it. And I'll just add, I think Zadarius Smith and Daniil Hunter are their best players, Minnesota's best players. And I think some of the, you know, getting them outside of the pocket would have run right into trouble more often than not. So those are some of the reasons. I wanted to point out two other things real quickly. One is they should... You know, they. I, I talked. I talked about Curtis Samuel's touches yesterday in my game recap. Give him more touches as a running back. There, you can control his touches. He had a 16-yard run. He's had a couple of really good runs. Not not to the expense of taking a lot of you know a lot of carries and giving them to Curtis Samuel instead of Gibson, um, which I would prefer. Um, but he only got one touch for 16 yards. Why not go back to that at least another time or two? Uh, the other thing too is that. I think some of you, when it comes to Turner, don't understand that there are other options for the quarterback that would have turned out better. And there's one play in particular. In a 7 nothing game, 3rd and 9, in Vikings territory, this was the QB draw play where he didn't get anywhere close to it. Well, when I looked at that play again, and I got uh, a friend of mine sent me the, 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 the play and said, this is what I think the play was, and my friend was exactly right. My friend's also a coach. It was an RPO play. It was a, it was a, it was a quarterback draw as the run option, and they had a beautiful screen set up as the pass option to Taylor's left. He made the wrong read on the play. He should have thrown the screen to Gibson. It was set up, and it's going to get, if it doesn't get all nine in a first down, it's going to set up a fourth and one, worst case. I think it gets the first down and some. They got three receivers out there blocking, and it is set up, and Taylor made the wrong decision. I mean, that's an RPO. That's a decision that Scott Turner trusts. He's going to be able to read the defense and make the right call, and he made the wrong call. And I would just suggest to you that probably Wentz has made the wrong calls on some of these as well. And not all of this is reflective. The final result isn't always reflective of the play call. Just remember that. I know I'm defending Scott Turner here with a lot of what I've talked about, but I do think there is some defense of him. I don't think this is all offensive coordinator. I don't. He's been limited, guys limited, bad offensive line, and doesn't have a quarterback, hasn't had one. I think they're going back to Wentz. I think Wentz is going to quarterback the game at Houston unless Taylor comes up super big Monday night. And they I'm not talking about just winning the game. I'm talking about looking good offensively. You know, if they win 13-10 to 10 because they get a special teams touchdown and the defense is lights out and they end up with 203 yards of total offense and they're 3-14 for 14 on third down, it's Wentz, even if they win the game. I just think they want to go to Wentz. I don't know that for a fact. I do have a strong hunch that if it's not Wentz against Houston, it's going to be Wentz against Atlanta. A lot of it has to do with his overall health, obviously. They're not going to put him back there unless he's 100%. But they want to prove to everybody that Wentz wasn't the terrible choice that we all think it was.
by the way, how about the whole situation in Indy? My God. Uh, Ursay is out to lunch. Snyder should actually go public. It'd be funny if he in, in said, I think there's merit to considering a vote on ousting Jim Ursay. I think I could probably scrounge up 24 votes. That would be funny if he said that. Ursay hiring Jeff Saturday. <laughs> he, he, by the way, he said something to the effect of, I'm really glad he was available to do this. What else was he doing? He was working for ESPN. He's, he's, he's coached high school football. That's it. Apparently, Indy in their game against the Raiders on Sunday will have nobody on the staff that's ever called an NFL play. Ursay sounded drunk during his press conference yesterday as well. All right, conversation with Nick Ackridge about grades and performances from Washington players Sunday uh, per PFF next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Don't forget to rate us and review us, especially on Apple and Spotify or wherever you can rate and review a podcast, specifically on Apple. Five stars. Nice. A quick one to two sentence review really does help us. Uh, Let's welcome onto the podcast uh, Nick Ackridge. Uh, Nick has become one of my favorites. He does a really good job of analyzing uh, football, specifically the teams that he cares about, one of which is the Washington team that plays here known as the Commanders. He's also a huge Tennessee football fan. Sorry about Saturday. I had Georgia minus the eight for it went to 10 actually before kickoff. Um, the whole world was on Tennessee. That was the single largest wager I've made this year. And I, Kirby, yeah. Kirby Smart was way too conservative. I thought they could have scored 40 plus in that game. I mean, I know Tennessee is your team, but uh, they were a bit outclassed Saturday in their first real big game on the road. Yeah, uh, I only got to watch bits and pieces of it. I was the best man at a wedding on Saturday. Oh, you told me about um, that, right. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise that I didn't get to see that full game. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I, I also bet on Georgia as a Tennessee fan. It's just 
<laughs> I did the same for the Alabama. The whole world was betting on Tennessee there, so it just kind of made sense to bet on Georgia. But um, yeah, it was it's frustrating. But I think they're still in a good path. You know, possibly get to the playoffs if things kind of bounce the right way. So. You know, yeah, it's true. It's funny because tonight we'll get the college football rankings out. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think the big question actually is, will TCU move in front of Tennessee into the four spot or will Tennessee remain in the top four and TCU be on the outside looking in? Look, I, I think TCU is going to lose. I think they're going to lose Saturday in Austin uh, against Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be a moot point. I did go through <laughs> through this exercise with one of my sons last night. And it is an interesting one. Um, hear me out for you college football fans, and Nick is one. Nick, of course, is a data senior data uh, analyst for Pro Football Focus, um, and we will talk uh, commanders here in a moment. But let's just say Georgia runs the table. They're in before any SEC you know, title game result. Um, no matter what would happen, right. they could lose that title game by 80 points, and they would still be in. The Ohio State-Michigan winner is number two. So now you get into three and four. If LSU runs the table, and I think they're in trouble this week uh, at Arkansas, actually. That line just is way too short. But let's just say LSU were to run the table and beat Georgia in the SEC title game. Let's see Tennessee runs the table and is sitting there as a one-loss team. And Oregon and, and USC sort of fall off the map. You know, USC loses to UCLA or Notre Dame and then beats Oregon, let's just say, in the Pac-12 championship. So you've got multiple loss teams there. I made the case that you could end up with Georgia, LSU, Ohio State, Michigan winner, and Tennessee. Because Tennessee is a one-loss team with one loss being to Georgia would certainly trump, you know, anybody else, a two-loss Oregon or, or, or SC or, or a one-loss TCU for sure. Nobody else really has much of a chance So you could end up with three SEC teams that way. The other interesting scenario is, let's just say, you know, Oregon or USC is a one-loss team or TCU, um, TCU goes undefeated now, they're in. But what if it comes down to an LSU conference champion or Tennessee for the fourth spot? LSU's a conference champion having just beaten Georgia, but they lost to Tennessee in resounding fashion at home. I mean, who, who would get in, Tennessee or LSU? This is These are all the scenarios that I was playing in my head, uh, drunk on Saturday night at a wedding, trying <laughs> to figure out how you could get back into the playoffs. Um, but I, that's, the, that's the conundrum right there, I think. Because, again, it's, I don't know how you keep out a one-loss Tennessee team with, like you said, that one loss beating Georgia. I think it's – obviously it's too early because a lot of things can happen. Like you said, I think Arkansas has got a real chance to beat LSU. Um, the TC Texas is favored by almost over Seven. a touchdown, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot can happen between them, but I'm just going to keep praying. If Tennessee runs the table, I think they have a good shot. I think they have a good chance, too. I just think that LSU is actually a really good football team, and the game Saturday worries me. And I don't know that LSU is good enough to beat Georgia. I think what we saw on Saturday, Nick, is that Georgia really is, when they play well, the best team in America, like when they're really interested both sides of the ball. Yeah. Although I'm like, a, I've become a huge fan of Michigan. And I think Michigan can go to Columbus and win. I do. I might be the mm-hmm. only person that thinks that, but I'm interested on what that point spread is going to be. I've been trying to guess it with some friends of mine. You know, last year I was absolutely convinced Michigan was going to be a short dog at home and the whole world was going to be in Ohio State. And, and Michigan was, and they won outright. 
I don't think Ohio State's going to be more than a seven point favorite at home against Michigan. I mean, yeah, I would, I would guess around like maybe four or five points. Who's at home again? Is oh, it's it in Columbus. It, yeah, it's in Columbus. Yeah, yeah. Some great so games I would probably coming. Five or six points. Yeah. Yeah, some great games to uh, to look forward to. Um, and the Pac-12 is actually really in play for the first time in a while mm-hmm. as well. All right, let's talk about um, let's talk about you know the team in general, and then we'll get to the game and, and maybe some of the grades uh, that you that you have that the PFF has. First of all, I- I'd ask you, how good is this defense right now? Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. I was I was a skeptic kind of going into this game because I, I think the Vikings do have a, a, a really good offense and past couple weeks they've played, you know, some not great offenses, even including the Packers. I mean, the, the Packers team is a complete mess. So um, I'm a big believer in your defense is only as good as the offense you're playing. Um, and so this was kind of a big test and I think they played really, really well. So I'm kind of back on the bandwagon that the defense is, is very good and can carry this team and you just need subpar offense to, you know, kind of get wins. Yeah, I mean, I think the nobody can run against them except for dual threat quarterbacks. I mean that that's been you know the issue, and even Jalen Hurts couldn't run against them in the first game. Um, but the, the, you know they are, I mean, they are elite right now. I think as a run stopping team, is that where PFF has them? I mean, do they have them as you know the DVOA Football Outsiders metric has them as the number one rush defense in the NFL? Uh, where does PFF have them? Yeah, the, the personal grades are going to be a little skewed because of that because basically teams aren't running as much because they just can't. So, again, you're kind of dealing with a smaller sample size there, which will bring some of the grades down if, you know, you have one bad snap. Like, for example, Jonathan Allen only had 19 run defense snaps. So that's just going to, you know, be a too small of a sample size to really kind of gauge how well he played. But I, I think DVOA is a great metric to kind of see how you, as a team, are you know stopping the run and stopping the pass and sort of stuff like that? So I think that's a, a more accurate way to look at it than you know kind of individual grades. All right, um, we are talking to Nick Ackridge. Nick is a senior data analyst for Pro Football Focus at PFF underscore Nick Ackridge, spelled A K R I D G E. Okay, you said that they're playing good enough defense if they can just get somewhere in that you know mid range or just below the mid range. Um, they can, you know, they can win some games. So where are they offensively in your mind right now, and where can they get to? I think right now they're a below-average offense. I think it's honestly is, is bottom 10 right now, and you're just kind of banking on if you can get that Heineke magic. And we got a little bit of it, and I think that quadruple, triple-team Hail Mary in the third quarter is might be the last dash of magic that he has left right now, but – you're really this whole offense is predicated on the quarterback play, and if you get good Heineke, like I said in the you know preseason, if you get good wins, you can you can win a few games. I think that's kind of where you'll see this team just kind of hovering around, you know, a win loss, win loss, win loss, maybe two wins in a row, maybe two losses in a row, something like that. It's just gonna, you know, it's, I think it's always gonna every game's gonna kind of come down to the fourth quarter, and you know, it's just those kind of little mistakes like the Heineke interception, the overthrow that Harrison Smith picked off. I think. You're just going to need to kind of have the offense kind of tread water, post for a little bit, and then, you know, hopefully you get the bounces to fall your way in the fourth quarter. What was Taylor Heineke's grade Sunday? Uh, he finished with a 49.0, which 
is kind of where he's been these past couple of games because we've charted him with a lot of turnover-worthy plays. Some of them have not um, fallen in the de- defense's favor, and he's gotten very, very lucky. Again, we charted that, that Hail Mary, that triple team, as a turnover-worthy play because if the back judge isn't there setting an, an incredible screen, that's most likely an interception. So it's been a little rough in our grading system for him, um, and you'll see sort of some EPA metrics and other metrics that are just kind of going off of the, the box score stats will have him a little higher than our grade, but um, it just kind of shows that he's, he's been getting pretty lucky right now. And hopefully for the commander's sake, that, that luck kind of continues. But usually when you see those amount of turnover-worthy plays with just a few interceptions, it usually starts to go, hill, go downhill pretty fast. I mean, that was a moving screen. They should have called that. Um, the referee did not have his feet. Yeah, the feet were were, were moving uh, on that screen. I mean, Cam Bynum was was ready to call a fair catch on the throw um, and would have had it uh, easily. Um, so, uh, over the last not just two days, but really two to three weeks, um, you know, I, I I've taken a lot of of Scott Turner heat because I. Have not. It's not that I'm a massive Scott Turner fan, but I think considering what he's had to work with here, um, he's actually proven to be okay. I mean, not great, um, but you know, look at the, the revolving door quarterbacks the first few years. Uh, some of the limitations they've had. They've had a massive limitation this year, quarterback and along the offensive line. And I went back and watched the game and watched the All 22 yesterday. Uh, because I, I was interested to see why they didn't use Taylor in more sort of movement situations as a thrower um, in particular. That's what you know. A lot of the fans are screaming. Why aren't we? Why isn't Washington leveraging his greatest strength, which is his mobility, um, his legs? Uh, how do you answer the Scott Turner question? How does PFF answer it? Yeah, it's. It's an interesting case. I think it's it's tough because, you know, he's been here for three, four years now, and, and again, we've constantly had these offenses that have been, you know, average to very below average. And you can just point to the offensive coordinator and say, well, that's his fault. He's got to go. But like you said, you, you have to look at what he's working with, and it's it's a real problem right now. His offense is does not play to the strength of Taylor Heineke. It's a lot of intermediate, deep routes. And it, that's just not... Heineke strength. He doesn't have the arm for that. He doesn't really have the height for it. And we've seen some of that with the batted balls and, you know, some of the overthrows that he has to literally get over the offensive line. But um, I, I think that is the, the biggest criticism is that he doesn't play to the strength of his offense at times. Um, I've said in the past, just kind of quick screens, easy screens to Gibson, um, Samuel, McLaurin, just, just get them the ball and let them, you know, create nine to 10 yards that puts you in favorable situations. He has a tendency to kind of, you know, when it gets to a first down and then incomplete, so you're in second and ten, it's just a simple run play. It gets you three, four yards, and now you're at third and six, third and seven, and that's not a, an area you want Heineke to, to consistently play, and that's why we see the offense really kind of, you know, fail in that in the first half and just not really get much going, but I think he just, he, he needs to play more to the strength, and we saw when you can use Heineke on that zone read, you can use his athleticism to get him out in space, and make people miss and he's a he's a great athlete so I think that is the biggest and, and the fairest criticism of him but overall I think he is like you said has done good enough for what you've given him because again we've had Heineke Wentz Kerry Gilbert we've had all of these different quarterbacks and it's 
very, very tough to judge an offensive coordinator based just on what he's, he's had at quarterback. Yeah, I, I, um, I, and I talked about it in the open of the show because in, in going back and watching the game, there, there are a couple of things that strike me just about what they've done, and it's not just with Taylor, but it seems to be even more with Taylor. He's not under center a lot, um, which means you know it's harder to run you know sort of the bootleg in the keeper game uh, unless the quarterback's under center. He's in the shotgun a lot. He's actually in the pistol occasionally, um, and they like to run the ball from the shotgun, uh, and they like to play action from the shotgun. And you know, play action should be a quarterback and an offensive line's best friend. And he actually has made some good throws from the pocket. But I think unless you really drastically change the offense and or you're going to go to dual threat quarterback stuff, which by the way, I'm totally with you. Like I I think it's easier said than done. I think when you spend all offseason, you know, installing an offense and then, you know, because you think Ryan Fitzpatrick's gonna be your quarterback for 17 games, and then you think Carson Wentz is gonna be your quarterback for 17 games, you know, and then all of a sudden you've got a guy that really you could really excel in a lot of the dual threat zone read and and much more RPO stuff, even if it's you know, kind of those zone read RPO combos in a play, um, which they they mm-hmm. had one the other day. Um, I uh, I don't know if you just implement that offense in October because your quarterback situation has changed and end up uh, being successful. I, I'm not saying that it can't happen, but that would be the one reason I think Scott Turner might say, look, if we knew he was going to be our starting quarterback for 15 games last year, or if we knew that he was going to have to come in and play six or seven games, because we would have had a second offense, but that wasn't the plan. What do you say to that? No, I think it's a very good point. You, you see a lot of teams, their backup is a similar version to you know, the starter. starting quarterback. Like the Ravens are an example. Like Lamar Jackson and his backup, they're carbon copies of each other. So you don't have to change right. the offense to do it. And Carson Wentz, Ryan Fitzpatrick are complete opposite ends of quarterbacks as Taylor Heineke. They're best in a pocket and if they're making quick and you know decisive decisions. And Taylor's at his best when he is scrambling making plays outside of the pocket. So you're right. It's very hard to just kind of completely shift an offense um, into Heineke's favor. And, you know, he's an incredibly fun quarterback at times when it's working, but it's also very frustrating because of that, because, you know, you have an offense that's predicated on these deep intermediate throws and it's just, that's just not, this is not a strength. Yeah, somebody pointed out to me, they said, you know, with Dwayne, they really got the ball out of his hands really quickly when Scott Turner was calling plays for him. They even sprinted him out on on occasion, and he wasn't necessarily the mobile quarterback. And my answer to that is, you know, when you just rely on kind of sprinting out and getting a quarterback on the move, you're also cutting the field in half. With Dwayne, they probably felt like they needed to simplify it and cut the field in half and and, and have it be a one-read kind of situation. I don't think they feel that way about Taylor. I think they feel like he's totally capable of getting through progressions and they can run their normal offense, even if their normal offense isn't best suited to him. Um, but I, I think that's part of it too, but who knows? Um, I, I don't see it getting a lot better than what it is, which is 
a couple of really exciting plays, fun plays, as I called them yesterday. And so many people thought it was so condescending, but it was really more in fun. I just said some of those cute plays. I said he's such a he's such a cute kid. I mean, out there playing, running around. Um, but you know, it's really complimentary because I love kind of overachiever underdog, you know, gamers, which is what he is. But he's also incredibly limited. Um, but I don't see it getting that much better. I think we've seen what it is. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I I think so. Like I I said, kind of like his magic might have run out with that triple team hail mary. I, yeah. I think we saw it last year too when when they were on their winning streak. Everything was breaking his way. You have the Heineke Heineke plays that were working, and it once that magic runs out, you you see where he's limited and. That's kind of the problem with Taylor Heineke. When that magic runs out, it, it does not look pretty. Do you think that they'll go back to Wentz when he's healthy? I, I think they will. Um, I just like we we were saying how they they haven't really changed the offense, and I think that they're they're kind of stuck with Wentz. And I think that they believe that if you get Wentz back, and even though he's not playing, he's had more time kind of understanding the offense, and they think that maybe you can get good Carson Wentz and kind of keep progressing in that 500 range and sneak into the playoffs. I, I just, I, I think you're going to be in the same situation. You know, like I said, just keep winning a game, losing a game, maybe winning two, maybe losing two, winning one. And I, I think you're going to get that either way with either quarterback. So then you have to play in, you know, the contract situation and the, the draft pick that you would have to give up for him playing a certain amount of snaps. And if it was up to me, I would keep playing Heineke and just kind of ride this roller coaster. Um, but I think they're, they're very set on what. I agree with you, and I have seen them do this rationalization thing in their own mind. Which, by the way, in some in some instances, they haven't been wrong. I mean, I, I think they, you know, they 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 were like, "Look, I mean, he, he was a rookie. We put a lot on him on Jamin Davis. We still like him. He's going to play well." You know, on the defense, they didn't go out and they didn't sign a bunch of defensive players because they thought they still had a defense that could perform at a high level, and they thought it was more about sort of some discipline issues and some really good offensive teams they faced last year in quarterbacks and I think yeah. they've been proven right on that to a certain degree but on the Wentz thing it's going to be about look our defense is playing lights out the NFC right now uh you might be able to go eight and nine nine and eight best case and, and grab the seven seed we're going for it I mean we've got you know we we got games on our schedule we can win and I don't know that it'll be any better. I'm not advocating for it. I don't think it'll be a lot better. I think we saw what Carson Wentz was in those first six games, but it could be better with a, a defense playing much better football, um, getting a turnover right. here or there. But I'm kind of with you. I don't know that it's going to be a lot better, um, but we'll see. All right. Who were the highest graded players Sunday? Because I thought defensively it just looked like there were some outstanding performances. Yeah, we had um, Montez Sweat was an 83.0, wow. Jonathan Allen 82.4, and then Curtis Samuel 82.6. That was the three highest, and then Damon Davis 74.9 um, was fourth. So those are the sort of the four highest graded plays. And Jonathan Allen's grade is 91. He had a 91.0 pass rush, um, five pressures, which just was just dominating the interior um, offensive line for the Vikings in the pass rush game. It was pretty cool to see. Um, just out of curiosity, I don't want you to give us all of them, okay? Uh, and I understand the sensitivity to that, but where was Duran? Duran was sixty-seven point one. Um, the problem with Duran Payne a lot of times is he's he's very dominant on the inside, just kind of getting into the backfield. 
he doesn't really finish those plays very often, and that kind of reflects in our grading. I think our, our grades have kind of always been a little lower than where I thought he's played to. Um, and that's just because of the, the whole the whole tackling situation and stuff like that. And it's very tough to grade a guy that's just supposed to eat up blocks. Um, and that's what he's he's very good at. And his grade sort of, or Jamin Davis's grade sort of reflects how good Deron Payne does, if that makes sense. If, if yeah. he's able to get those blockers, give Davis some free lane, sure. let him make decisions. And that's kind of why you're seeing Jamin Davis take a step up. Who's getting doubled more, Payne or Allen? Do you know? I think it's I think it's pretty even, honestly. I they, they kinda shift them both um enough and they're both both of them are playing almost almost ninety five percent of the snaps. Um I, I'd have to look to see who exactly is more, but I, I think it I think it would be pretty even. Yeah, I think early in the season I noticed that it was much more pain than Allen, um, but I really haven't paid attention to that recently, and I would imagine with the way John's been playing, the teams are trying to double um him. Um <clears throat> Uh, two other players, real quickly. St. Juiced, what kind of grade does he get for the job he did on Jefferson Sunday? Yeah, he's, he's another one of those players where the, the grade might not show how well he played because we, we're not adjusting for the matchup. Because if we did that, you're just kind of opening yourself up to a, a world of other questions. But um, he finished with a 57.4. Hmm. And if you kind of take that into perspective against Justin Jefferson, that, that's pretty solid. I mean, our grade your average grade is a 60. If you're just on the field not doing anything, it's a 60. Um, so a 57.4 is just right below average. And if you consider that against Justin Jefferson, I think that's pretty good. And you, you saw him when he was getting beat. He had one play where he was actually beat, and he, Jefferson had a step, and that was on that, that slot fade. Um, but the other two catches were contested catches that he just kind of needs to do a better job of getting his head around and finding the ball. But I think he was very good in coverage. He was very sticky in coverage against Jefferson. Um, there were a few times where he was in zone, not against Jefferson, and, and looked a little looked a little lost out there. But just straight man-to-man coverage against Jefferson, I thought it was, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many times they have essentially gone with sort of star treatment with one of their corners on a receiver. But I think it's pretty telling that the you know the star player that the, you know the, the star treatment was handled by by Benjamin St. Juiced. I don't think there's any doubt they believe yeah. he's their best cover corner. Um, what about they Luke? never did it with yeah? Go ahead. Or William Jackson. They they just they kept Kendall Floor on one side, William Jackson on the other side. They never exactly. had to follow at all. So exactly. This is it. It's impressive to see it. Like you said, they clearly trust him, and it showed he had some really, really good reps against Jefferson. So I think it's really promising. And by the way, I you know the size and the length is obvious on the on the on the corner blitz that Kirk didn't see. He got there in a hurry. I don't know what he runs. Yeah. I haven't looked that up, but I think he runs much better than most six three guys um, that play the yeah. position. I mean, the length and the size are going to close the gap, you know, even if he doesn't have the four three speed. But he's more than fast enough, and I think you saw it. That acceleration on that sack was pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, it was. It's a very interesting concept. If getting X's and O's wise, like they sent the two, they sent both corners on a blitz. They did it a couple times, and it worked out really, really well. Just kind of like you said, using his speed to his advantage, and he can close down ground very quickly with his, his long strides. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I think one of the things that Jack clearly wanted to do because we haven't seen a lot of it in recent weeks, he just wanted to speed it up, and I think they really felt they had an advantage inside with that with the two guards and Bradbury, who's a smallish center, and then got hurt. Uh, in the game. Yeah. Um, 
It seemed to me that Cornelius Lucas got beat multiple times and badly. I'm just curious as to what his grade was in pass pro. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, He finished with a 38.4 pass blocking grade. Yeah. Um, And that was mostly against Daniil Hunter, who's a very interesting guy. He's he's very, very good, but he's unique. You don't see any of the... Any of the pass rush moves he does, you don't see that copied anywhere. It's a very, very strange and unique sort of pass rushing style. So, yeah, he had his problems out there, and I don't think even if he had Cosme out of right tackle, I don't think it would have changed. I think Daniel Hunter is a very, very good pass rusher, and it shows. Hunter and Smith are really, really huge for defense. It's actually at times struggled, but you're right. You know, it, 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 I'm curious as to why you think Hunter's style. Uh, he's obviously a a leaner, longer, lankier one. You know, kind of dude as as a pass rusher. But man, when he's been healthy, he's been one of the best. But what makes his style different? Yeah, he's he's an incredible athlete, and he's just he's just weird. Like it, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just weird. Like you, a lot of times when you see an outside sort of swim move there batting the hand down and just swimming outside but he sets it up differently and he's he does everything sort of opposite so it kind of sets it up to make the tackle think that he might be going inside when he's going outside and it's just it's a very unique and interesting way to rush the passer and it's worked for him his entire career i wonder do you think that cosme to guard leaving lucas and leno at tackles when cosme's truly healthy and ready to go is the way they'll go, or do you think Trey Turner's shown enough here, and they're obviously, you know, still believing in Norwell? I mean, what do you think happens there? I think they go back to Cosby right tackle. I think they kind of believe in him there, and our, the PFF grades have been kinder than a lot of fans have thought um, on Cosby. Yep, especially just run block. I think he's he's an incredible run blocker, um, and I think Turner has actually played a lot better these past couple weeks. Um, that, that could speak to maybe just him being healthier now. Um, but yeah, he's, he's played a lot better. He's had two clunkers against Jacksonville in the first week and then Dallas. But other than that, he, he's been really solid. So I think they stick with Turner at right guard and go back to Cosby at right tackle. We are talking to Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. And the best part about Nick is this is his team. Um, Washington is his team. Uh, I am curious about one grade for the other team. Um, and that is, you know, I'm a big fan of Kirk Cousins, and I have been from the jump. And uh, everybody that's listening to it knows that I'm a big fan of Cousins. And I said something yesterday that I'm sticking by. Statistically, it was far from one of the, of the best games that he's played. But I think it, it is one of the more memorable games, not because of Washington, but because of the beating he took, I thought, in that game um, and the pressure that was quick. I mean, you already mentioned the 47-yard throw on third and seven, which was really the play of the game for Minnesota. They're down 10 at that point. They're going to have to punt there. Um, And he got buried uh, by Deron Payne and dropped it in the bucket. What was his grade on Sunday? Uh, He finished with a 79.0. We had it with four big-time throws. Adjusting completion percentage was a little off. I think he was a little inaccurate at times. But like you said, he was he was getting absolutely destroyed by Allen and Payne at times. Yeah, and he stepped up some incredible throws. I mean, I'm a Kirk Cousins fan. I think the way we kind of handled it was a mess, and we can spend hours talking about that. But um, I think he's a good quarterback. It showed, and yeah, he was he was very impressive putting the ball in, in spots that only his guys can can get it, and it kind of showed on the Jefferson catches against St. Jude's. St. Juice was in perfect coverage, but 
perfect ball, there's not much you can do. Well, I didn't know that you were um, a Kirk guy, too. So I'll ask you the question that I got asked a half dozen times last week for various things, including from from Ben uh, standing for his athletic story. Uh, if if he had stayed, what do you think the last you know five years would have been in Washington with him at quarterback? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I think he he absolutely is. I, I don't know if you can make an argument that he, he isn't the best quarterback we've had the past fifteen twenty years. Um, that says more about the you know the state of Washington's quarterback situation these past fifteen twenty years. But um, I think he is a very good quarterback. I think he will consistently be in that 15 to 10 range of quarterbacks in the NFL. Now the question has always been with him is if you get a great team around him and he gets to the next level. He hasn't shown that in Minnesota yet. They've had some very good teams. They have a very good offense now. They have a pretty good defense. So you can kind of this is sort of the year where you should really see it all put together. But I think if, if he stayed here these past uh, couple years, I think you would kind of see them you know, consistently around those eight, nine win ranges um, and, and fighting for playoff spots. I, I don't think you would see them, you know, in the top five picks like they have been in the past. But, yeah, I, but I don't think he would have ever really elevated the team to the next level, and I think that's always been his biggest criticism. He's just a um, above average to, at times, great quarterback. And you can win a, a lot of games with that, but the question is, can you win at all with him? And if you get um, – if you get great Kirk Cousins for a good stretch, I think you could. And if that it hits at the right time, then yeah. But I think there's there's a lot more questions with that. And I think you would need sort of a perfect team around them. Well, I mean, I think that that's uh, kind of my my thought thought too, uh, because I think the great team around him then is contingent on because he was going to take up a lot of your ca- a salary cap space as he has yep. in Minnesota. It then it then is really reliant on you drafting exceptionally well and having a lot of young players on rookie deals that are significant contributors and big time players. Minnesota's had bad defensive teams with him, and they've had terrible special teams with him. The kickers cost them multiple games you know over the last year and a half or, or, or two two years some of the same things that were here now it wasn't necessarily because of the percentage of the cap that his franchise tag was taking up um but i think that's the issue which was was why my answer if i haven't given it on uh, given it on this podcast and maybe i haven't maybe i did with tommy last week is that i think he would have improved i think with jay as his offensive coach and play caller that they would have had really good offenses at times as, as mm. long as they were healthy but the the cap would have been the big issue and them drafting well would have been significant you know getting getting the the medium level free agents to overperform and getting your players on rookie contracts to play at a high level would have determined whether or not they you know, had a chance at 11 and 12 win seasons or whether, like you said, and I think this is probably more accurately um, described, that they would have been in the race every year and they would have made the playoffs once or twice with 9 or 10 wins, but on a couple of the years where they got injured and they had no depth because of his salary in the cap space, they'd be at you know, 7 wins somewhere around there, which is yeah. exactly what it's been in Minnesota. You know? Um, yeah, I was about <laughs> That's the, that's the case that they're dealing with now, and that's what all their fans have been arguing about for the past three, four years. Is yeah, he's a, he's a really good quarterback at times, but is he good enough to demand all of that money and then leave you short on on other positions? And that's what they've been dealing with. And like, who knows? It might it might finally work for them this year, but 
um, I have my doubt. Yeah, well, he restructured. They they were able to sign Zadarius Smith. They were able to you know add mm-hmm. a, add a couple of pieces. I'll tell you, the Hawkinson addition at the trade deadline I think is huge for him. He made such an yeah, impact on Sunday. All right, uh, let's take a break. Nick said he will stick around for one more short segment. We've reached the midpoint of the season pretty much across the board. Uh, not everybody's played nine, but many teams have played nine at this point. Uh, and we'll talk about the NFL season to date, and we'll get Nick's Super Bowl pick here at the midseason uh, point. We'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, let's finish up our conversation with Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. We'll go around the league. I do want to mention that this segment, even without Tommy here today, is brought to you by our good friends at Shelly's Back Room, the best cigar bar in town, uh, a real neighborhood feel to the place, great drinks, great food, 1331 F Street Northwest, Shelly's Back Room. You'll see Tommy down there, pretty much even money. He's down there uh, a few nights a week. Um, It's got a great uh, vibe, a great feel, great people in there. Sports always on. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street Northwest. All right, Nick, if I told you in uh, in the NFC right now, Tampa Green Bay Rams, three quarterbacks struggling, three teams, struggling, if I said to you one of them is going to end up turning it around and being a threat when we get to the postseason, which of those three teams does it? Uh, I would I would be a fool to not say Tom Brady. <laughs> I would be a fool to not say the Bucks. I think I mean, it's bad. Like All three of those teams on offense look very, very bad. Like You can make an argument that they look as bad or worse than the Commanders at times, and we saw that with the Packers. I, I don't think the Packers figure it out, I think. They, they have a whole host of problems in the wide receiver. They just lost Romeo Dobbs for yep. probably four, six weeks now with an ankle sprain. So, um, and, and the Rams have a lot of problems on the offensive line. I, I think your best bet would be on the Bucks, mostly because they're in a very bad division. Yes, of course. They can easily get the playoff. And then, then you're betting on Tom Brady in the playoff. So I, I would always bet on him not against him in that situation. Um, I'm with you. I mean, the division, more likely than not, is going to give him an opportunity to get in. I also think that mm-hmm. just overall, the team is much better. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. I, has, has anybody brought up just how many balls have been dropped by Mike Evans and other Tampa receivers the last few weeks? Mike Evans must have a half dozen dropped balls on big plays. Yeah, it, 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 it's bad at times. I mean... He, Tom Brady is right now, I'm pulling it up, he has the second most drops of any quarterback in the NFL with 17. Yeah. Right above him is Trevor Lawrence. Uh, I mean, his, his grade is a 76.2. That's, that's low for Tom Brady, but that's still that's still above, you know, in the top 15 of quarterbacks right now. So, yeah, I think if you can kind of just get guys to step up around him, and them losing their center, Ryan Jensen, is a huge problem. Um, he, Ryan Jensen is one of the best centers in the NFL. So, 
losing him it has been kind of a, a massive problem for them. But I think they are getting healthy. And again, like you said, if, if Evans and Godwin and you know they can step up and you know make those big plays for him, I, I think they're in a good position. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that it's the second most drops in the league. It just seems like every yeah. time I turn them on, somebody's dropping a perfect, a perfectly thrown Tom Brady pass. Um, of the teams, and we've got a lot of them this year. You know, it, it doesn't happen every year. There's always surprise teams, but there are a lot of them this year. In the NFC, Seattle, Atlanta, even though they're four and five, they've played much better. The Giants in the AFC. You know, you would obviously say the Jets more than anybody else, but you could also look at the Dolphins. Although I think there was a lot of expectations of what they could be could be before the season started, mm-hmm. but give me sort of your feel for those teams that have overachieved based on preseason expectations. Who's for real and who isn't? Yeah, I think the, I think the Dolphins are absolutely for real. Um, I think the offense that they're in now plays to Tua's strengths perfectly. Just quick anticipation throws, and he is absolutely destroying you right now with Tyreek Hill and Wall. I think they're absolutely for real. I think the Jets are. And a very interesting team. They're not fun because they, the way they play is very, they're just going to muddy the game up. Their defense is incredible right now, and you're just going to kind of rely on Zach Wills. It's similar to Washington. I don't think Washington's defense is at that level just yet, um, but I think you can make an argument for it. But very similar. Muddy the game. Very gonna... similar age wise, yeah. too. Yeah, uh, I think it's just, it's one of those teams that. You know, if the luck falls their way in the, in the fourth quarter, which it has, and a lot of these teams, you need to get lucky, and a lot of fans don't like to hear that. They think, oh, we're not lucky. We're good. You know, we deserve this. But you do need to get lucky. You just you just absolutely do. The turnovers need to fall your way. Um, balls need to bounce your way. And right now, props to them. Their defense is incredible. And if you can get Zach Wilson to just tap it up a little bit and look competent at times, then I think they can continue. I think they can continue in the playoffs, but I don't know if you'd ever really you know, count on them to – really go anywhere in the playoffs, but I think it's a it's a fun and interesting team to, to look at. What about the NFC teams, the Seattle Giants, Atlanta? I put Atlanta in there even though they're four and five because they've every mm-hmm. single game they've lost was winnable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Except for the Cincinnati. Giants are similar to the Jets. Yeah, uh, the Giants are similar to the Jets. I think it's a it's a very good defense and offense has done enough to win these close games. And again, I think you could see them sneak in. I don't know if they would do anything. I think they would be. They're still heavily. Um, every team they play, they're they're never favored. Um, so I don't think they can really do much. I think the Seahawks I, blows my mind what they're doing. Blows my mind what Geno Smith is doing. I, I I don't think anybody ever saw this coming. I think everyone thought that they would be a you know a team that's fighting for the first overall pick, and now they're in a great spot to to make the playoffs and maybe even do something in the playoffs. I think. If you can continue to get this sort of Geno Smith, then I, I think they can actually you know, make some noise in the playoffs. I don't think they're really a Super Bowl contender, but it's, you can't really count them out for the way they've played and have looked at times. Um, give me here at midseason your Super Bowl pick. The matchup and the pick. Matchup and the pick. I think I would still... I would still go chalk with Bill the Eagles. I think it's... I think the Bills, Chiefs, and Eagles have all been those three teams that have just looked dominant at times. Um, obviously, the Bills just lost to the Jets, but you know any team can can lose to any team in the NFL. We've seen that for years. Um, I think it is the Bills' year. I think they finally kind of get there, and I think. And then, as a fan, I hope I hope they win if they're playing the Eagles in the Super Bowl. But I, I think it, it's tough to 
to really bet against those teams. I, I think they're kind of clearly the, the best three teams right now. I mean, before, you know, the, this past weekend, and of course, you know, um, I agree with you, uh, things happen uh, in the NFL every week, but, there, you know, it, it, Josh Allen also got injured. This injury could be interesting to see because it's that yeah. UCLA, UCL in the elbow. It's kind of, I think, what Stafford might be dealing with as well, not, not to mention a horrible offensive line. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, those three teams, especially the two AFC teams, had kind of separated themselves so you throw Philadelphia into the mix. If I told you that none of those three teams went to the Super Bowl, give me that. I'm asking you to give me from outside the top three your next two, one in the AFC, one in the NFC. AFC, I think you could see the Dolphins. Um, I think that offense is extremely explosive. It's, it's very fun to watch. NFC is tougher. I, I, I don't know who is next, really. I mean, if if we're just going off of records, it's the Seahawks right now, right? No, it'd be Minnesota um, off of records. Minnesota. But again, I, I think I would go Tampa Bay as crazy as that is right now. I, I think I you would go Tampa Bay. I think you can, if they get in the playoffs, I think they're still one of the most talented teams out there, and, and they have Brady, who has still looked pretty good at times. What do you think um, of the so ni- I, What do you think, think of the Niners? The Niners are interesting. Um Run-heavy team. I don't trust Jimmy G as far as he can throw a ball. I, <laughs> I just don't. I don't trust Jimmy G. They've obviously made it there, but I think I would still lean Tampa Bay. I know some Niners fans might hate that, but I, I would still lean the Bucks. Just let McCaffrey throw it four or five times a game, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're fine. I don't work. know the 49ers to me. And the Cowboys, to a certain extent, especially if they were to add OBJ, I don't know if they're going to do that or not. And we don't know what OBJ will look like um, off the injury. But the 49ers, in terms of the roster, minus Garoppolo. But you have to consider Garoppolo because he's already come up big in some big games that they've had in the postseason. Look, without him in that Rams season finale, they wouldn't have gotten in the postseason. He made a couple of big throws in the Packer game. He had him in position in the NFC Championship game. I'm with you on him as a quarterback, but for whatever reason, in their biggest spots, he's actually delivered. But that roster yeah. is nasty. I mean, I, I I think their secondary is average, but their front seven is dominant, as is Dallas's. You know, I think I think both the 49ers and the Cowboys would be I think they're gonna be threats to Philadelphia anyway. Um mm-hmm. but you know, health has a lot to do with that. The 49ers need to get everybody back. You know, and, and I think yeah. they will. I mean, it's not like Debo's out forever. It's not like, you know, Juszczyk is out forever. I, I, they, 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 they'll get some of these guys back. I guess Kinlaw probably won't be back, right? Um, I forget what his status oh. is. All right, what else? What else are you interested in NFL-wise these days that we haven't talked about? I think it's, it's just the, the whole, basically the, the middle pack. I think it's one of the weirdest seasons where you have you, you have maybe the – the Texans and surprisingly the Raiders as, as kind of the bottom teams right now. And then everybody else is just kind of jumbled together as not really good, not really bad, but they're just kind of there <laughs> right now. Um, so I think that's one of the most interesting things because it, it leads you to a lot of very close and competitive games like we saw in the one o'clock slate last week. It's just going to be, it's going to be fun. 
I'm so with you on the on the bad team thing. I mean, you might be right about Houston, the Raiders. I mean, who knows? Maybe Carolina's headed in that direction. But, you know, all three of those teams have been capable on on certain Sundays. I mean, Houston's record, I think, is very deceiving. I actually, you know, in watching them against the Eagles last week, I think Damian Pierce, other than Kenneth Walker, is the best rookie running back in the, in the league I'm, and, and maybe one of the best backs that we're going to see over the next four to five years. And and they they're they're like all of these supposed horrible teams have been very capable in in recent in recent weeks, and and I guess the, to me that is usually you know two or three teams are just horrible, um, and I'm not right. sure anybody's truly horrible this year. Yeah, and like I said, you can, you can make the argument that the Raiders aren't really that horrible. They right, they're they're a weird team, um, but. No, I think it's one of the weirdest seasons because, like you said, everybody can beat anybody. and That's been a cliche for years, but I think this year it is very, very true. I think it's a very weird year. Um, you're going to see a lot of teams kind of with a lot of upsets, and, and a lot of times it's just going it's, it's to be fun. It's just going to be plain fun, I think. Great job, as always. I enjoyed the conversation. At PFF underscore Nick Ackridge. Nick does a really good job uh, covering the league as a data analyst for Pro Football Focus, and he is a huge D.C. guy uh, as well. Uh, We'll do it again soon. Thanks, Nick. Absolutely. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for our show. I am expecting a Cooley film breakdown tomorrow. Hopefully we'll get it. I haven't talked to him in a few days. He was away this weekend, uh, but I will push for that for tomorrow's show. Uh, Back tomorrow.